Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Fans online, um, everybody hopefully may have seen me at an event like this before. Uh, if not, um, I'm currently the Global Head of Financial Crime Compliance for First Sentia Investors. I've been in Australia about 11 years. Um, I've worked for two of the big four, Westpac and CBA, at both times when they were having their fines, but it was not my fault. Um, I've also worked for PayPal as Chief Risk Officer and uh, went back to Westpac for a little while covering the Pacific, which was very interesting and probably equips me well to speak about higher risk customers. And now I am working in a global environment in asset management, which is very interesting. Previous to coming to Australia, I worked in the Caribbean and the Middle East for over 20, 25 years, and I've worked in some of what I would consider the higher risk jurisdictions in the world. So places like Cayman, Bahamas, Turks and Caicos, Jamaica, Curacao, Suriname, Guyana, Latin America, um, all the good places. So Naomi asked me to sort of take this at a bit more of a practical level. So we've had a lot of cerebral kind of big picture thinking, but this is taking a, a little bit more of a deeper dive into how mature is your management of higher risk customers. So I want to woo, talk about what I'm gonna cover. I'm gonna talk about what the definition of a higher risk customer is. Um, consider Austrax what was draft guidance, but from Leanne's comments today, I think was actually issued about a week ago. Um, and then talk about the so what and the how of higher risk customers. Look at customer due diligence, ongoing due diligence, enhanced customer due diligence, all the due diligence, and the learnings from some cases. And then talk a little bit about ending a relationship. It's not you, it's us. Um, you know, when you have a relationship and you break up, it's it's not you, it's me. But in actual fact, in this case, often we want to end a relationship with a higher risk customer. And it's actually because we have concerns. And then a little bit of a recap. So a bit of an audience participation. So I want you to think about three client types that your organization thinks are higher risk customers today. And I want you to write those down. And then I'm going to slap some up on the whiteboard here. I also want you to think about what resources do you use to validate your risk perception? So interestingly, Andrew was talking about the perception of AML, but higher risk customers, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder sometimes. What's high risk to one organization is not necessarily higher risk to another organization. So as you were going through this, think about your perception um, and how you validate that risk perception. And as I speak today, I'd also like you to think about what additional controls or monitoring you have and you need to develop around your high-risk customers. So that's kind of our little journey that we're going to go on. So what I'd like is some volunteers from the audience to shout out one or two higher-risk customer types that you have on your books today. Go. Oh, trusts. Politically exposed persons. Anybody else? Mine. Casinos. Casinos and gaming. Should we go there? Oh, remitters. Crypto. So we've, we've talked about some of these today as we've been going through sessions. Anybody else concerned about any particular 
sectors type suppliance. I can see you want to say something. Oh, buy now, pay later. Clubs and pubs, RSLs, charities. So there's quite a few, right? Have we got any online, Naomi? Charities? Horse racing, racing, gaming, gambling, casino. So there's a lot of different ones out there. And there's obviously a, a sort of... <laughs> I want to say stable there's a stable of higher risk customers and um, it's because we were talking about horses right it just went there um but that is your definition of something that you in your organization organization assess as higher risk would you agree with that statement yeah and where do you get that from so austrack in their draft guidance mentioned providing business services for the transfer or storage of value for underlying customers such as remitters, digital currency exchanges, and fintech. Do you agree with that statement? High-risk customers? And then they mention an honourable mention for some others. So not-for-profits, so that's your kind of charity kind of space. Um, lawful sex work industry. Does anybody bank or provide service to the lawful sex work industry? Of course they do. You might not know. <laughs> you might not know that Alice is actually a prostitute. And in some states, that is actually a lawful occupation. She runs a brothel and she will bring in, be bringing her cash in. Um, adult stores, gun stores, um, other cash intensive businesses, pawnbroking, things like that as well can fit, fit in there. And the last one is a bit of a catch-all Customers that are from or operating from other countries, so outside of our domestic shores. So there's, there's a range of different definitions of higher risk customer, and not all organizations consider them to the same level of higher risk. So they're in this bucket, and, and Leanne from Austrac talked about the differentiation within risk categories. So some organizations have high high risk customers, medium high risk customers, and low high risk customers. So within high, they have graduations of high. So we're starting to sort of get through um, to a little bit more granularity here. So the role of the business, um, sorry, rather the, the first thing under the consultation paper they talked about was that in recent years, some institutions have just stopped offering services to these higher risk customers, or they have debanked or de-risked. And Leanne talked about that. The thesis in the paper is that this is not good for anybody because it's basically pushing these higher risk customers underground and pushing them to organizations that are not as mature with their risk management systems. And that means actually we're kind of losing sight of them within the, organ within the ecosystem. And this would be something Andrew would speak about. And that's actually not good for anybody. So we should still be able to bank or treat with or deal with or service higher risk customers. We can't just ignore our responsibility and absolve ourselves from that responsibility by exiting higher risk customers. So you know, we're pushing them potentially into unregulated channels. 
And what the guidance is seeking to do is really get an, um, a consistent understanding of the risk-based approach and how we can service high-risk customers going forward. The interesting thing for this consultation paper is that it actually had a message to the businesses that were being debanked. And it said that you can increase your chance, chances that financial institutions will provide services to you by being open and transparent with those financial services organizations. And that will help the financial in institutions to meet their obligations when providing services to you. And that's actually a little, little interesting kind of element that we, we don't always see in consultation papers. So the background um, for the draft guidance or the guidance that's been issued was that for the risk-based approach to work effectively, you actually need to understand the risk, right? Um, and there must be open communication, but you as a financial institution need to be confident that you understand the actual risks that that higher risk customer is exposing you to. You need to align that to your organization's risk strategy. So you must understand your organization's risk appetite statement. And your organization needs to say whether it has a high, medium, or low tolerance for taking on these types of customers. If you have no tolerance, then you shouldn't be in business and you should shut down. It also, with your higher risk processes or customers, you need to have that endorsed by your board and potentially individual customers need to be signed off by senior management. That is to show that they understand their accountability for taking those higher risk customers onto their book of business. And the objective of all of this is to ultimately ensure that financial institutions engagement with customers reinforces the risk-based approach. Now, interestingly, I was at a seminar last week and a comment was made that in over 80 paragraphs within the AMO legislation, there is reference to the risk-based approach. But one of the speakers said, whilst there are so many references to the risk-based approach, people don't really understand the risk-based approach. And actually they've defaulted to kind of a tick box process, which is something we've talked about earlier today. And um, it's, it's kind of paid lip service to. And on the other side, when the regulators come in, it feels like you're being checked against a checklist. And again, we've had that conversation today. But the point is, we are trying to effectively um, protect the economy in Australia. And we're also looking for more than disengaging from risk. We're looking to engage with the risk and understand the risk and be able to deal with these customers. The risk-based approach does not imply a zero failure. And again, Leanne mentioned this. Um, we're not going to stop all financial crime. It is always going to be with us. Sadly, it is one, it's endemic in society. And I think, you know, once we accept that as a thesis, um, we can kind of move on. And no reporting entity can reduce final financial crime risk to zero. And I just want to leave that thought with you for a moment. We cannot reduce our risk to zero. So what are we trying to do? What are we trying to achieve? It does need to be aligned to our strategies and Austrac acknowledge and recognize that we are commercial organizations and we can decline to provide designated services to anybody we want to decline. We have a contract with our customers. We have no right to banking in this country. In some countries like the Netherlands, there is a right to banking. There's a couple of exclusions here in Australia. Um, 
but generally speaking, it is a commercial engagement. We offer a, a bank account or we offer a financial service, whatever it might be, insurance policy, asset management, what have you. The customer accepts that contract. They can leave us at any time, generally speaking, unless there are product terms and conditions, they can leave this afternoon if they want to. This is a two-way commercial contractual arrangement. So Austrack acknowledges that we can exit customers, but they also say that the um, financial institution has to ha does not have to have resources to understand specific um, customer types or industry uh, sectors. There is no requirement to decline to provide a designated service to whole industry sectors. So it's not embedded in the AMO legislation that you can't do business with remitters, you can't do business with buy now, pay later. That is an organizational commercial choice. Obviously, ultimately, engagement with customers is going to reinforce the risk-based approach and um, you know, make sure that we are still protecting the Australian economy. So what does it mean? You need to look at each customer and think about the risk that they're exposing you to. And we need to consider the nature of your business relationship and, and the context with the customer. So if you were thinking, um, if you were a realtor, for example, it's a very transactional one-off relationship. So, you know, when real estate comes into tranche two, they're going to have a different relationship with customers than say an asset manager. You know, our clients stay with us for decades. I mean, they place money with us for the medium to long-term and they stay on our books probably for 10, 20, 30 years. Banking relationship, may be highly transactional, could be that you give them a mortgage, um, could be that you give them a loan, but there's a context to your relationship. And you need to think about the risk associated with the specific product or service that you are offering that customer. So this is the, cum the culmination of different risk types. Leanne mentioned the customer risk type, she mentioned the channel risk type, um, she mentioned the product risk type. And the methods of delivering your designated services to the channel, are you delivering it online? Are you delivering it face-to-face? -face? Are you delivering it digitally? You know, these are the channels you might be looking at through a website, something of that nature. And you need to think about relevant foreign jurisdictions and geographical risks. So my business decided the other day they'd like to go into Latin America. Woo so the conversation we've been having for the last five months is, is this really a good idea, guys? Because our risk appetite tolerance is set at very low tolerance for financial crime risk. But you want to go into Chile, Peru, Uruguay, Colombia, Panama, and a variety of other countries in the Latin American region that you've got no experience in, you've never done business in, you've got no operations or reps offices there. Does this sound like a good idea? I'm not saying you can't do this. I am just saying, does it fit with your risk appetite? What do you think? Thank you, because I'll take that back and say a group of 20 people said this is not a good idea. <laughs> but, but we've had to go through the process. We've, I've had to do assessments on all the jurisdictions. I've had to provide all the data. I've had to explain to them the risks in these different countries. And they vary. And, and again, Leanne said, you can't just say, European Union. You can't just say Latin America because each of those countries have different risks. So Venezuela has potential sanctions in place, um, has a 
kind of rabid political situation as well. Most of them are on the verge. They're like one or two months away from a coup or conflict. You know, this, this is not good stuff, right? They, they're un, unsettled countries and they have a high propensity for bribery and corruption in these jurisdictions. They are also civil law jurisdictions predominantly. So they don't actually have a common law jurisdiction base for their legislation as, as we're used to dealing with. So you're dealing in an entirely different legal situation. And there's at least two, if not well, three languages. So you've got English, Brazilian, um, or Portuguese in Brazil and Spanish predominantly. So when you collect ID documents in those countries, they're not in English. So you've got translation issues to deal with as well. So these are the kinds of things you need to think about when you're dealing in different geographies. So your assessment of your customer's money laundering terrorist risk profile should be informed by your up-to-date assessment, um, your enterprise-wide or group-level money laundering terrorist financing assessment, which means you have to have one. And we've talked about that today uh, quite a lot. But you also need to look at any other risk assessments and relative Austrac or other regulated guidance. So, you know, if you're dealing in different geographies, um, you might need to expand your remit to looking to other guidance. You need to have ongoing monitoring of your customers' activities and um, also and in this guidance note it just says you need to take into account any direct feedback you've had from Austrac. So if you've had an enforcement undertaking or you've had a visit, um, an inspection visit or something like that, you need to take that into account. Does that all make sense? So, so what and how? You know, th this is kind of like probably the money slide in this set of slides. And as Andrew said, if you take nothing away <laughs> from any of these sessions than one thing, this is probably the one to have a look at. So you need to think about your relationship. I've said, you know, is it a one-off relationship, a long-term relationship? Is it relationship driven? Do you interact with your customer on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, an annual basis? What is your relationship with your customer? You need to think about your type of product or service. You need to think about your enterprise risk assessment. And is what you're doing in line with what came out of your ERA? You need to think about whether you need a tool for your enterprise risk assessment. We operate in, we've actually got businesses in nine countries. We operate in 52 legal entities. We've got 18 entities in our designated business group. Our enterprise risk assessment spreadsheet is epic. It is phenomenally epic. And we are looking at using tools to try and make that a much more seamless process that we can use for scenario testing. So when they next come back to me and go, hey, we've decided we want to go into Africa, I can go, oh, goody. And I can plug that into my enterprise risk assessment and I can show where our risk appetite may skew because I can run the scenario in there. So your risk assessment is not only should not only be static with regard to what you're doing in your business on a day-to-day -day basis, but you should use it for forward thinking as well when you're planning strategically. And you need to keep up with the typologies and papers. And that is an awesome task. So there is, I don't know about you guys, but my reading stack is constantly overflowing and it's really hard. One tip I would say is that often the law firms will give you very good like summaries, potted summaries, and those can be really, really helpful sometimes. Um, but just be careful. And if you're digging into a specific higher risk category, look for the typologies in that category. Method of delivery. So how you deliver your designated service is your channel risk. 
And, um, you know, we've talked about this face-to-face, interwebs, whatever it might be. The other thing I will just remind you is to think about whether you delegate any of your KYC to anybody else, whether you rely on anybody else, or potentially you distribute through somebody else, because that does not remove your risk. You are still on the hook for the risk, even if somebody else is doing your KYC for you. So if you're outsourcing or you're distributing through somebody else in the asset management space, we often have distribution agreements where somebody either takes our product, white labels it, or actually sells it under our name, which actually is quite scary sometimes, and they do the due diligence on the underlying investor. We get no look through on that underlying investor, which increases our risk exponentially. And it comes back to us because under the prudential regulation, we cannot absolve ourselves of the risk. But in, um, in the banking space, you'll often have agents, you'll have franchisees, things of that nature, where you delegate the KYC to somebody else. And that actually is something else to, to really consider about method of delivery. Geographic risk. Do you only do business in Australia? Yay, that's good. Um, different parts of Australia have different risks. I mean, I lived in Brisbane for a while. Bikies everywhere, man. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how many there are up there. It's quite scary. Then I moved to Darwin. Oh, my God. Have you been to Darwin? Um, it's like the last frontier. There's a sign at the airport with one of the law firms, and it says, running away from something, we have lawyers here too. So that's what meets you at Darwin Airport, which kind of puts into context the type of people that you're dealing with in Darwin. Um, it's quite interesting up there. So, you know, even within Australia, you've got some different risks you need to think about. If you're dealing overseas, be scared, be very, very afraid. You are going to have to get across a lot of jurisdictions. And our colleague Kieran um, talked about the LexisNexis, which is about regulation. But this is about knowing your country. And the best resource I've found for this is a site called knowyourcountry.com. Now, know your, I've used knowyourcountry.com for many, many years, and they have an abundance of really useful free resources. But there is also a subscription service. And when you pay for the subscription service, it opens up an entire other range of different services in there. Country by country reports. Um, it gives you all of the comparisons of equivalency. Are they meeting the FATF requirements? Transparency International Perception Corruption Index. Never get that right way around. TI um, Perception Index. And um, it's got a lot of free resources. And I've talked to a lot of colleagues in the industry and they use the Know Your Country and they're like, oh yeah, we use the free resources. This is pretty cool, man. And I'm like, be careful about free resources because there was a prosecution in Malta of a bank who used the Know Your Country free resources and said to the regulator, well, we use the Know Your Country free resources. And the regulator said, how's their methodology work? Where does their data come from? What's the background behind it? And they got fined not just for that, but for some other things, but because they had their risk ratings did not consider all the risk factors and could have resulted in a distorted understanding of the risks involved and the incorrect application of internal controls. So you need to gather all this data together. And if you're using free resources, be careful. The Know Your Country site will do the heavy lifting for you. It will do the baseline work, which is good. And I'm, I've got no shares in it. I'm just sharing it as a useful resource. Um, you may need to do overrides based on your own risk appetite and your own internal um, strategic execution position. 
So um, a quick comment about special considerations for customers regulated by Austrac. So obviously Austrac has received feedback from the industry, from digital currency exchanges and remitters that we are registered with Austrac. How come we're having so much trouble um, getting banking services in particular? We're being debanked, we're being de-risked, et cetera. And Austrac has said, your customer's Austrac registration does not remove the requirement for you to undertake initial and ongoing due diligence, but in the absence of significant red flags, would uh, which would suggest otherwise, you should consider the customer's registration with Austrac as a mitigating factor. So they're not saying it's, you know, <laughs> all done by the shouting because they're registered with Austrac. What they're saying is there may be other red flags like adverse media information, evidence of phoenixing, um, so a business that appears to have the same key personnel that was recently shut down and has now resurged in another persona, or evidence that the business has changed ownership or key personnel shortly after the Austrac res registration without reasonable uh, explanation. So I think this is interesting because, you know, Austrac is taking on board the feedback from these debanked sectors that, you know, we're all in this together, we've got AML programs. I reviewed over 2,000 remitters AML programs when I first arrived in Australia. Wasn't the best contract I've ever worked on. Um, they ranged from two pages to what I would call a credible AML program. So all AML programs are not equal. Uh, and then you need to think about that when you're looking at individual customers. Um, Austrac, all Austrac regulated businesses must have an enterprise-wide money laundering, terrorist financing risk assessment, must be up to date and tailored to the specific circumstances. And it says when you're dealing with a customer who's regulated, you may want to ask for their risk assessment and get a copy of it and review it to make sure it's up to date and reasonably on the face of it reasonably reflects their current business and is tailored to their particular services. Sometimes you're lucky to get this, sometimes they'll refuse. If you ask my organization for a copy of our enterprise risk assessment, we will not share it with you. It is proprietary information. And that's often an answer you'll get, particularly from large financial institutions, but also from smaller ones as well. So you can ask, and if you've asked the question and it's got a reasonable answer, but if they won't share it with you, and we are, we are asked this question all the time, if you won't share it with us, how can we make an assessment of you? You know, the same goes in both directions. So um, I want to talk a little bit. So we talked about higher risk customers, what the definitions are, and then I want to talk about know your customer. So applicable customer identification procedures must be done before you provide the designated service. And that's pretty standard in most jurisdictions around the world now. And you must ensure that you are reasonably satisfied the customer is, is who they say they are and know who the customer's beneficial ownership um, owners are. So that's, you know, the baseline. From that, you must apply a level of due diligence that is appropriate to the assessed risk. So if you've said this is a higher risk customer, you have to have appropriate um, applicable customer identification. But the comment has been made that not all customers need to be subject to the same level of customer due diligence, even if they operate in a sector that could be considered higher risk. So this is, again, back to this, you could have a low risk remitter, a medium risk remitter and a high risk remitter, depending on the volumes that they process, where they're located, their regulation, their AML program, so forth. You must understand the nature and purpose of your business relationship. 
mostly that's pretty standard stuff, right? You know they're coming to you for the particular services that you offer. This all, um, always seems a little circular to me. If they're coming to you as a bank, they want banking from you. You know, they want transactional activity. They want a loan. They want a mortgage, whatever it might be. They come to you as an asset manager. They want asset management. It kind of feels a little bit... Um, Yes. Um, and you need to consider the risks that arise from providing the designated service. And very importantly, your staff and managers need to be informed and trained on their responsibilities with regard to assessing risk. So your line one teams need to understand risk. In a lot of organizations, I don't see this, to be honest, they just follow process. So they follow a checklist and they get to the end of the checklist and they go, okay. So what do I do with it now? But they, they haven't got like a, a risk mindset. They're still doing that checklist checkbox process. We also need to think about ongoing and enhanced um, customer due diligence. Obviously, what we're trying to do is identify, mitigate and manage the risks throughout the course of the business relationship. And OCDD ongoing, again, has been talked about um, quite a bit today because your profile, the customer's profile might change over time. So it's not a set and forget. You need to look at changes in their business models, changes in their management, or if new information arises, wherever that may come from. And you need to evidence that you took your obligations seriously. So it's not just a kind of whitewash process, that you actually went through this process. ECDD is your enhanced customer due diligence. And there you may need to get your senior management to sign off. Again, this is really to... Um, ensure that somebody in, or, in the organization is taking accountability for taking the risk on into the book. And you should record your final decision and the rationale for why you decided to take that higher risk customer on board. Austrack say in their paper that a higher risk money laundering terrorist financing risk does not automatically mean that a financial institution must discontinue a business relationship. And there, there seemed to be at, at a point in time in the market, a feeling that, oh, gosh, I can't deal with high risk customers. I'll just get shot of them. Customer due diligence measures, including transaction monitoring, should be proportionate to the risk. Now, this is interesting because a lot of our transaction monitoring is kind of one size fits nobody. So, you know, it's, it's set and forget. We put it in there. And if you're thinking about taking on higher risk customers, you're really going to need to think about your transaction monitoring and whether you need to take any changes on board there. Um, I wanted to just talk about a couple of claims. Again, these get hammered a little bit, I suppose, so I don't want to spend too much time on them. But um, you're all aware that in 2018, um, Commonwealth Bank uh, took a bit of a hit. Um, and Westpac being mentioned again a couple of times today. And of course, more recently, um, March uh, 2022, Crown Resorts got in Melbourne and Perth, their standard Part A programs did not include appropriate systems controls and procedures to apply appropriate risk-based ECDD to customers who were subject to ECDD triggers. So they had the triggers in place, but they didn't actually apply appropriate um, activity to them. The Westpac case, I think, is quite interesting because here, this, uh, again, Andrew mentioned, a very small number could be considered an immaterial number of potential child exploitation material potential linkages. And um, the, the crux of this issue is that when Westpac had formed a suspicion, which potentially means these are higher risk customers, that's kind of one of the definitions, um, of possible child exploitation material, um, they should have really reviewed the complete customer relationship 
and all of the accounts that were held by the customer or to which the customer was also a signatory, and they did not do that. They should have reviewed and updated the customer's know your customer information. I have a little bit of a problem with this, to be honest, because you know your customer information, and Leanne mentioned refresh of KYC. To what purpose? You know, you, your identity doesn't change mostly during your life. Your name might change, divorce, marriage, deed poll. Um, you know, your date of birth is never going to change. Your passport is valid most countries for somewhere between five and 10 years. Your driving license could, I mean, the UK driving license is valid till you're 72. So you get it issued and it stays with you for a very long time. The Hong Kong ID card never expires. You know, so I, I'm not really sure about KYC refresh and the, the value that it adds to the process other than gathering more data, but I'm, that's, I'm open to debate on that one. And um, you need to escalate the customer and any related customers. And this was another part of the, the problem at Westpac was the related customer aspect, aspect um, and determine, this is the critical one, whether you wish to continue doing business with them. So there's, there's a whole process. Once you've identified a high-risk customer through SMRs, you need to go through this process. If you keep the relationship in these circumstances, you need an improval and you need increased monitoring um, over the customer's activity. And if you decline the relationship um, or place restrictions on the type of transactions the customer can do, because sometimes you can do that. You say, well, we won't give you the full range of services, but we'll give you just transactional banking, perhaps. Then um, you need to make sure that you've documented that rationale and you continue to manage and monitor the customer. And I just set out down here that the order of against Westpac set out an allocation of 1.3 billion civil uh, $1 billion civil penalty, um, including 300 million within that number for ongoing customer due diligence failures, which works out for the 262 customers that they'd failed to apply this to at $1,145,038 per customer. So OCDD is important um, and you need to be thinking about that when you're looking at your higher risk customers. With Crown, their enhanced customer due diligence programs were not supported by appropriate information management and record keeping. Can't, might as well stop there really. To be honest, the Crown document reads a bit like a checklist of what not to do. Um, they had uh, data in multiple IT, IT systems. They had multiple customer IDs and names, including pseudonyms. Um, their record systems weren't capable of prov providing a single view of the customer. Um, I mean, it, it goes on and on, really. Their AML programs did not contain procedures to escalate a customer for ECDD when a suspicion arises. And you can see there's a whole raft of other things. And at the bottom, I've got a little quote there. Despite the money laundering terrorist financing risks, Crown Melbourne and Crown Perth continued to provide designated services to customers without carrying out appropriate risk-based ongoing due diligence, including enhanced customer due diligence. So this is all part of your higher risk customer management program. So we've talked a lot today about the risk treatment process. I won't keep going on on this one too much, but basically you need to identify your types of higher risk customers that you are willing to treat with. You need to determine the residual risk rating post application of controls that you are willing to take on board based on your execution and strategy and your risk appetite statement. You need to agree a treatment 
option to control or meet your tolerance. And you need to think about how much that option is going to cost you, because this is, after all, a commercial enterprise. You need to make money out of this client. And you need to implement um, your compliance plan to give effect to the controls that you've put in place. So it's no point just having the control and then not making sure you follow through on it. And in the middle, I've put ensure somebody is accountable for all of this, because often what I see in organizations is they put the system in place and then everybody takes two steps back and goes, oh, I thought compliance or financial crime were doing that. And financial crime goes, I thought line one were doing that. And somebody else goes, oh, I thought audit would come in and check that. So, you know, it, it is important that somebody is accountable if you're going to take on higher risk customers. Um, Ending a relationship. So I, I said I'd have a little bit of a moment on this one. It is a commercial decision, but Oztrack strongly recommends that you record in writing the rationale for declining to provide the service to a customer if you're doing that on the basis of your AMLCTF program. Um, they may review those records as part of their supervision visits to check on the implementation of your risk-based systems and controls. They've also said that you should give the customer sufficient notice and what sufficient notice will vary on a case by case basis. But if you are debanking or de-risking a customer, they will probably find it very difficult to get banked somewhere else. Um, and what we've seen is a few years back, a number of remitters were taking financial institutions to court because they were saying they'd not been given sufficient notice. It's very time consuming. It's very expensive. Um, it's bad press. You don't want any of that. So it's better to give an appropriate period of notice. That could be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 75 days. You're going to have to come up with that decision yourself. And you're going to have to monitor that because often they don't get banked anywhere else. And you've come to the end of your 75 days and they're like, well, we've got nowhere else to go. And we're, you're like, well, ta-ra. Um, and you can shut them down. But then when they go and look for an account somewhere else, they're going to have to say they've been debanked by another organization, which is a risk factor against them, which makes them a higher, higher risk customer when they go somewhere else. So, you know, there may be exceptional circumstances where this is not possible. The only time I've seen it acceptable to exit somebody with zero days notice is when you have a genuine concern that they are utilizing your facility for money laundering. And you've got to be careful about that because could infer that you know it's not tipping off necessarily it depends what timing on your smr but you need to think about that as well so just saying go this afternoon you know is not reasonable and the courts would probably frown on that so Ostrak have suggested you need to provide meaningful reasons to customers for deciding not to provide financial services. I, I am a little debatable on this one, to be honest, because it is a commercial arrangement, right? How many customers give you notice and say, I'm really sorry, we've decided to go to another bank, we're going to give you 30 days notice. They don't do it, right? They just leave or they leave $3 with you or something and, you know, sweep out all the rest of their money. If you don't want to do business with them anymore, then you can say you don't want to do business with them anymore. I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. You do need to avoid tipping off, um, as we've discussed, and um, noting, citing vague AML CFT uh, obligations or tipping off when speaking with customers as a reason for decline may in itself increase the risk of tipping off. So you're gonna get into this spiral dive on this a little bit. Um, so just be quite careful and get your legal team involved is what I would say if you are exiting um, a higher risk customer. So how mature 
is your management of high-risk customers or high-risk customers. I asked you at the beginning, you know, what would you consider higher-risk customers? I asked you to think about how you're dealing with them at the moment, how you've come to your perception, where you've got that information from, um, how you're controlling them. In any control process, you can avoid the risk, you just don't do business with them. You can remove the risk, you debank them or exit them. You can outsource the risk, but you don't really get rid of the risk because whoever you outsource it to um, is only doing a, a part of the job for you. You can accept the risk or you can consider reducing the risk, but you need to have reasons of why you've taken the path that you've taken with higher risk customers. You do need to think about your compliance risk by severity, high, high, medium, high, low, high, whatever category is going to use, extreme, um, different types of terminology. You need to think about the resourcing that you need to deal with higher risk customers. They are time consuming. They are labor intensive. You need to think about your implementation schedule, the residual risk and its impact on your overall risk tolerance and your risk appetite statement and whether you're skewing your risk appetite statement. You need to have monitoring and reporting and you need to keep this all up to date. So thank you. I'm happy to take any questions. I hope that was useful and provided you with some practical thoughts on the management of higher risk customers. As I say, my understanding is the paper dropped last week, I think, yeah. Um, so it's definitely worth having a look at, uh, particularly if you've got any higher risk customers in your book or you're thinking of moving in this area. Um, and as a commercial consideration, you can make money out of higher risk customers because you can charge them a lot more money. Um, the best I've ever achieved is a million dollars. So we had a very large remitter in Curacao and they couldn't get banked anywhere else. And Clever Chuck here said, I know we'll charge them a million dollars. That will make them go away. And they paid, which was really surprising. But I was then able to use the million dollars to set up six people monitoring team who their only job was to monitor that client. So we took them on and we made a lot of money out of them. Um, but they were a higher risk customer and they did. They were very resource hungry. But be, be careful. Don't call their bluff. Yeah. Um, oh. Sorry. Nope. Hello. Anyone else to back? Anyway, I'll yell. <laughs> um, Sharia banking. I've got an issue with banks. And how do you handle that? So I, I dealt, I lived in Dubai for about five or six years and I dealt with Sharia banks there. They're some of the best banks I've worked with. Um, so Sharia Bank is almost like a community-based banking arrangement. Um, people pay their zagat into it, which is their kind of um, tariff. And um, I, I've actually found them pretty good, to be honest. I mean, they, they were very uh, community-spirited. It was all about doing the right thing for the community. And therefore, they were very, very careful about who they actually brought on as their customers. We do have a question from online. Ooh. How exciting. This one's on. Oh, yes. Um, so can you speak to the concerns where you've got disparate impact when dealing with risk categorization? For example, risk derived from location or professional. So like the nexus of risk. So it's kind of cumulative. So again, <laughs> I'm working on Latin America, um, my chief risk officer said to me, so 
We want to go into 13 countries. If we took Colombia and Panama off the list and we only did high net worth individuals in the other countries, would that make you feel better? And I said, no. So, <laughs> you know, I think you've got, um, and we were dealing ne not necessarily face-to-face, -face, we were dealing non-face-to-face. -face. So we'd got channel risk, we'd got customer risk in high net worth individuals in high-risk jurisdictions. So, you know, it, it kind of extrapolates and, and accumulates because you've got multiple risk factors. And that's where your enterprise risk assessment will help you because it will help you take the passion out of it a little bit, be very dispassionate, quite numerical, um, and you, you know, you can risk weight your factors and you can use that in order to really give yourself a much more um, objective assessment of a higher risk customer. I'm not sure if that answered that question, but I hope it, it did. did. I don't think we've got any more online. We've got an in-person. Oh, coming at you from the other side. Let's try. Carolyn, that was really interesting. Thank you. Um, what would what would make you more comfortable about the Latin American exercise? Is there something that you could go back to them and say, well, if you did A, B, and C? Oh, yes. So we've done that. So um, in my situation as an asset manager, we're actually distributed. Well, somebody is distributing for us. So a large global bank is distributing into that country. So we asked them for a copy of their AML policy. They refused. We asked them for a comfort letter. They refused. So we had a meeting with their head of AML compliance and their head of AML legal. Interesting that they've got one of each of those. Um, and they talked us through their policy. The thing is, the policy is only as good as the policy is. And what we haven't seen is the procedures on the ground. So we asked for the right to audit and they refused. So um, we're now working with them about uh, actually registering the underlying clients directly onto the register so we can at least do adverse media and sanction screening. Because one of the big issues for us as well is sanctions, particularly as there's been a, an outflow of Russians into the Latin American environment. So um, there, there's definitely steps you can take, but if you're kind of getting blocked at every step of the way, you know, what I've tried to say is um, I've tried to be pragmatic. I've tried to offer alternate processes. If you're getting blocked every step of the way, you write up your rationale, say, we tried this, we got refused. We tried this, we got refused. And, and at some point, you're going to have to come to a risk ass assessment and decision. Second half of the question. <laughs> some, some customers um, change their spots, mm -hmm. which may be why APRA is talking about ongoing knowing your customer yeah um do you pick that up in other ways and would that be a way to go back to APRA and say maybe yeah I think I mean I'll track I'll track I think um ongoing customer due diligence I touched on it briefly um you've got to keep doing your media research that's it can be I mean I, again the seminar was at last week <laughs> it's a very depressing statistic we spend 97% of our time not finding anything, right? I mean, most of the time, you know, when we do our transaction monitoring, you have lots of false positives, we discount most of them. We actually find a very small percentage of things that have gone wrong. But that's the kind of needle in the haystack you're looking for. I think with AI and machine learning, what we're going to be doing, you know, we're going to see, we're going to be able to find the needle in the haystack more easily. 
um, because it's going to be looking for things that human beings are not necessarily seeing those connectivities, those connections, multiple phone numbers at the same address. I mean, we had one customer in one organization I worked out, we had 76 people living at the same address, but we only found that because of nodal analysis. But then you look at it and go, well, I don't know, there was a comment about a lot of people on the strawberry farm living in the same address, perhaps it could be something like that. But, you know, it, it was not usual data. You see the same mobile number being used multiple times. That can be difficult in just having spent eight months in Fiji. Um, the mobile providers in Fiji recycle phone numbers. So I had a SIM card. I've given it back. Well, I haven't given it back, but I've left. But that number will get used by somebody else. So you do have to treat with the countries you're dealing with and the particular environment. Um, but I think, you know, we need we need better tools. And I think my rah-rah moment is we can't all do this individually because we're all, I mean, if you look at the big four banks, they've all got thousands of people beavering away in op centers, and that's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars being used. We, we need to have some kind of collaborative industry effort, bring that together and do it once. But data is a bit of a problem. But perhaps we don't need the data that's stored in every organization. We need some kind of central repository like the government. So, you know, big, big picture visionary thinking. Um, but I think, you know, at an individual level, you just got to keep your finger on the pulse. Um, there's a lot to do. Got to keep up with the countries, got to keep up with the legislation, got to keep up with the changes, got to keep up with the customers. It's, it's a big, big ask. This podcast has been a production of the Australian Compliance Institute and the music was done by Rob Neary.